This episode of the Better Every Shift podcast is brought to you by Lexipol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Now let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Better Every Shift podcast. My name is Aaron Zamzow. I am a fire lieutenant in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm also a contributing writer and author for Fire Rescue One. And with me, as always, is I found a new title for you. I was watching a uh, great film on um, you know, space, and they referred to the person in charge there as the commander. And I think that's a perfect title for you, Commander Janelle Fasquette. Uh, and also the editor in chief of Fire Rescue One. How are we doing today, Janelle? I'm doing good. It's always good to get a promotion. I like it. Yeah, we called you the colonel last time. I think commander is a, a little bit of a promotion. Uh, we'll see about uh, getting the marketing department to change your business cards. I think mm -hmm. that, that one is probably going to stick. Um, I'm really excited, as you can kind of tell. I always am, but uh, when we get to talk to a, a friend and a colleague, uh, I get a little probably more. Um, a little more uh, higher octave in my voice and a smile, bigger smile on my face. Cause we have with us today, um, Dr. Derek Edwards, who is a very, very smart individual, but he's also one of the most genuine and nice human beings in the world. How you doing doc? Thanks for joining us today. I'm blushing right now. Uh, but <laughs> other than that, doing, <laughs> doing well, uh, I now feel like I'm going to let all of your listeners down. So great. Uh, I'm doing great. Just, no pressure, just no pressure. yeah, no pressure. Just relax oh. and talk like uh, we're there uh, picking on um, uh, Chief Frank Lieb, like we were the other day in Tucson, where um, we were just both speaking at a conference and we had some some great conversation. And I thought we have to get this on the podcast. Uh, and so again, thanks for being here. But let me just kind of give everybody that's listening just a little brief bio of, about who you are and um, what you do and and uh, just. Uh, you know, the framework of what we'll talk about a little bit here. You're Dr. Derek Edwards, you're your professional counselor, mental health service provider. You serve as assistant professor of psychology at uh, Tennessee Tech, where you also operate the TTU Responder Health Lab. You've been researching um, the psychological effects of being a first responder for, for a long time, almost 20 years, I want to say. Uh, you joined the fire service in 2004, you're a firefighter EMT. And you're also a member of the Tennessee Federation of Fire Chaplains, the TFFC, and um, a very smart individual. You really are a great, great presenter. I just saw you speak. And uh, you were talking, obviously, about mental health. You were talking about just some of the things that what research shows us that we should expect as a first responder. And our conversation started off with, Okay, five years from one to five years and then five to, to whatever years, you can see a kind of this divide. Um, can you elaborate on what we were talking about there? Yeah, so um, uh, first of all, you, you forgot in the bio, uh, long walks on the beach, uh, and I am a Sagittarius. Uh, <laughs> you so, are, and, uh, a, and a tremendous haircut. For those that aren't watching on video, you got to see he's got a great haircut. Yeah, uh, it sometimes gets down in my eyes, uh, and then I just put it right in the trash can. <laughs> uh, and that, that works well. So that, that five-year mark uh, is, such an, is such an important mark. So what we see is 
at around five years, uh, we know the research shows us a quarter of all people who uh, went through training to become an emergency responder, roughly a quarter of those will no longer work uh, in fire EMS any longer. The financial burden. So if, like for, for those listening right now who are uh, in the, that officer level, that's a lot of money invested uh, in a very poor return to, to, to lose uh, somebody after after only five years uh, is not a, is not a good return on investment. But the downside of this is it's also not great for the person uh, who we lost after that that five years as well. And the reasons that people give, there's there's all sorts of them. One of them used to be, uh, and and still is. I, I'm I don't want to discount it at all. But but salaries, uh, what what folks make uh, is uh, tend not to tends not to be in line with the type of work that they do. But interestingly enough, as we see salaries going up and up and up across the the nation in the world of emergency response, we're not seeing massive shifts in what people are are. Uh, are doing at that that five year mark. We're still seeing folks uh, leave leave the serve leave the service and go do uh, other type of work. So it just kind of became the low hanging fruit. Uh, one of my and and I know you've heard me say this a, a thousand times, Aaron. So I'm sorry about it. But one of my uh, litmus tests uh, is when you go to a restaurant at five years. If you go with your family, they they no longer ask which seat uh, you want to sit in. They they know <laughs> that you want the seat with your back to the wall where you can see the door. Uh, and we don't even recognize that we do it. And I, I think that's what's interesting about being um, a researcher of something that I am involved in is sometimes I, I see these things and I'm like, oh, crap, like, like that's me. Like, I, I wish that I wish that wasn't me, but I don't like my back to the door. I, I, I don't. Um, one of those areas in our brain that changes is called your amygdala, which is always looking for things that are dangerous. So uh, amygdala is responsible for fear and aggression. It does other things. Uh, so don't write in. I know. Um, but uh, fear, <laughs> it's always looking for things that that might be dangerous. And, and in the emergency responders world, uh, what's dangerous is like nearly everything. You know, we can be having a, a card game at the at the dinner table and then the tones drop. So your brain starts to say like, hey, at any moment it could get real. And, and if it's gonna get real, I need to make sure that I'm ready to go. So I need to make sure my, my resting heart rate's higher. I need to make sure that I've got a, a lot of uh, low, uh, low hanging energy stores available. It's one of the reasons we crave things like sugary, starchy and fat foods. Now, I would like to go on record as saying that those are also all of the delicious foods. So like, I'm not gonna beat those up too much, right? Uh, but our, our body's just trying to say at any moment, we got to be ready. And at that five year mark, uh, we tend to be different uh, and, and we tend to be different for the remainder of our existence. Uh, but that's not broken. Uh, I know you've heard me say that we're, we're not broken individuals. We're just different. So that, that five year mark is, is really important. So if if you're listening, you've been involved in uh, fire EMS or uh, emergency response for five years or more, uh, I think you'll agree uh, you're you're different. And and that's probably OK. Yeah. And you're not alone. I think as people are uh, listening to this, you're kind of going, yeah, yeah. Especially the thing about the door. And then um, I've had conversations with um, other first responders where there's like a if there's a crack in a mic or a, a special sound, you know, that we're used to hearing before the tones go off or before a pager goes off, um, you know, being at a fire conference. And if there's a lot of volunteers there and a pager goes off, the, the room quiets and everyone kind of turns and you know but you can hear every you can feel everyone's take a deep breath and you, you know everybody's heart rate is kind of elevated a little bit so there are those little nuances 
Now we were just at uh, a great conference together and um, you were speaking about managing the impact of behavioral health challenges and their biopsychosocial impact. And, and Janelle was looking at me going, well, what does he really mean by that? And, and I think that ties into this, you know, five-year mark and some of the things that we, we see, but what were the gists of, of, uh, uh, you know, topics that you talked about when you, when in that particular presentation? Yeah, uh, full disclosure, the uh, that description for that session certainly wasn't authored by me. Uh, okay, because I think I know who did wonderful. it. Uh, yeah. I think I do too. I would never, uh, I would never uh, out Sarah Janky like that though. So that's good. Um, uh, so Doctor Sarah Janky, I wouldn't do that either to her. Yeah, yeah, that would be just awful. Uh, what what we have to look at is if, and I believe strongly that we are whole people, right? I, I, if right now you're listening, you're like, I don't think I'm a whole person. Well, that's sad. Like, uh, and, and which part are you? Okay. So like, I think we're whole people. So we have a bio side of us. We talked about our amygdala. We have a psycho side of us, which isn't, that doesn't star in a, in a, in like a, a slasher movie. The, the psycho of us is, is like this internal dialogue that we wrestle with. It might be the insecurities that we walk around with every day. And we are uh, social creatures. Uh, in fact, we're, we're actually more than social creatures. We're what are called uh, ultra social creatures uh, because not only do we like groups, but we can take a group activity and divide it into separate tasks and put it together for one bigger piece. So it's we're even more than social. So uh, in, in your work as an emergency responder, uh, you're not just influencing the biology, right? You, you can't just change the way you process threat responses to, to what you're saying that the sound of that first cue up of a mic is a, is a sound that the vast majority of people never hear. Like mm -hmm. th they get surprised, uh, but we know when someone's about to make an announcement, we can hear the cue up. Like it, it's, it's, a, it's immediate. Uh, my master's thesis, I, I focused on a physiological response to, uh, to those types of things. And, and just having someone hear that they were getting paged to an emergency call uh, took them from a resting rate of around 70 to tachycardia. Just and, and when you ask them, you know, how stressful do you think hearing those tones were? The answer is always, oh, not at all. Right. So there's a biological uh, problem that's going on that has a psychological impairment because we can't notice that we're having a biological change. And so sometimes our thoughts get a little different. Right. So th that psycho side, uh, we quickly stop believing in, a, in what's known as the just fallacy. And I think this is good that we stop believing in that. Um, the just fallacy is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And you don't have to work for even five years to realize that that is not true, that that good things happen to good and bad people. And unfortunately, bad things happen to good and bad people as well. It's this kind of chaos that, that we live in, this this kind of shield that most people get to live under. They can believe things like uh, cartoon movies that always have a happy ending for the good characters, you know, uh, because that's what we like to think just it isn't true but then the social component is because we're changing uh, we actually struggle with socialization my doctoral dissertation looked at a concept known as alexithymia uh, and in alexithymia uh, we struggle to recognize what we're feeling to modulate it internally but then most importantly express it to others so if I don't know what I'm feeling, how to change the uh, the level of it or tell anyone, I've now eliminated what research shows is the best coping mechanism possible, which is called pro-social coping, reaching out for help or recognizing that I'm not alone. 
but but all three of these things they cascade uh, in in a way that actually makes it difficult for us to have healthfulness it makes it pretty easy for us to spiral into into a level that we never saw coming mm -hmm. which then leads to all the uh, the vast number of health issues right because oh, yeah. because of the biological response we have we don't think we're having a biological response and right. then because of that biological response and what we become accustomed to, we, from a chemical standpoint, don't like to talk about it or socially talk about it, right? And, yeah. and, and what that is doing is, as you and I talked about, is it's really setting us up for this crash course of, of mental health problems, of 100, you know, 100%. physical problems. Um, so that's the bad news of it. And there is actually a chemical um, there's, there's a chemical validation to that. I think that's kind of what you've just been telling us is, Hey, right. When you're seeing these things and feeling these things, that's what your research is telling us. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't always this way, right? Uh, we see, uh, what, what we call the, the, uh, British empiricism, uh, British empiricism, or, or sometimes referred to as the great enlightenment. Uh, this is when we saw a, a, a just a flat rejection of what was at one time known as the metaphysical. So the metaphysical were things that we couldn't put in a test tube and we, we couldn't measure them very well. Uh, we, we often talk about eras and we'll describe it as an era's zeitgeist. So what was kind of the theme of, of that day? Uh, and in, in the Enlightenment, the zeitgeist was the physical. And this is, the, this is kind of like the groundwork that would lead Nietzsche to say that God is dead. Not necessarily that God is dead or, or or not dead, but because you can't measure God, it, it can't exist. It's metaphysical. So this rejection of the metaphysical. So when we start looking at the interventions we've been exposed to as emergency responders to help us with the persistent level of stress that we experience, most all of them are physical, biological interventions, and they they exclude that uh, that psychological and especially that that sociological intervention. So we've, we've really kind of hold ourselves off. And I think that is the bad news is uh, I meet a lot of responders who believe that that they are truly broken, you know, that that they're that they have a, a dysfunctional neuronal system uh, when when I, I quite honestly have a hard time uh, buying uh, that that we are broken humans, given what we've experienced. Yeah, you're only broken if you don't really do anything about it. Hundred percent. Yeah, and yeah, and we've had great conversations about. You know, the bad news is there's research that shows we're messed up. The good news is now that that's in, we're more aware of it, there are a lot of things we can do. Right? There's a yeah. lot of things that we could do to change this. So, based on your research, what's and for those listening, okay, now they're going. This guy just said a lot of big words, but I think I get what he's saying. It's like there's chemical stuff going on that I've probably denied. Um, so what can, uh, what's the first thing you want people to start to do to improve their mental health that we can do that's pretty easy step? Yeah, uh, my step number one is um, take a breath, right? Like it's, it's, it's such an important thing to do to take a breath. Um, recognizing that we are, uh, and, and I, I've really borrowed this phrase here recently and I, cause I absolutely love it. Uh, but, but the term is anti-fragile. Uh, yeah, we, are, uh, we are anti-fragile, right? When, when we struggle, we, we don't break. We actually get stronger given a, a, a set, certain set of circumstances like a good social support system, right? So take a breath and then surround yourself with people 
who are in this journey with you. Uh, if we can do those two things, first of all, we're making lots of strides uh, already. What research will show us is that um, there's this new concept, and it's not new, it's just getting more traction now, called post-traumatic growth. Uh, the thing that I, i'll talk about a lot i can't do anything about post-traumatic stress right post-traumatic stress is simply the stress that results after a trauma like that's just the basic definition but i treat what's called post-traumatic stress disorder we forget that the disorder is a separate word in in the world of post-traumatic stress i can't do anything with the stress that's you got called to that this is what you're doing what we can do is prevent the disorder right and, and actually facilitate growth now, not only am I not damaged, I'm better than I ever could have been because yeah. I appreciate life more, because I understand the, uh, the fragility uh, of every moment with, with others, because I can see that I'm actually empowered to have a better human existence, a more peak human existence than folks who uh, never struggled, who never had a challenge or who never witnessed uh, true humanity. It's, it's, I say it, it's like the most burdensome gift you've ever been given is when you become an emergency responder. How do we change our outlook, though? Because there's so many people that go, woe is me, woe is me, right? But you have to flip the switch in a way to 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 have that insight and that take that particular um, uh, path and, and mindset. How do we do that? I think it starts with our ability to recognize what we do is inherently stressful, right? Um, our initial... Uh, our, our initial gut instinct is going to tell us to minimize and pretend, right? It's yeah. not so bad. It's uh, it just it is what it is. It's part of the job. All, all of those things that that we've said, and they're not necessarily wrong. It's just it misses the part of the story, which is that we are called to deal with highly stressful, difficult things. And and simply acknowledging that they are highly stressful and difficult doesn't mean we're weak. It, it means we're observant, right? Uh, we look at a we look at a house, and you know, let, let's say we roll up on scene, and we've got heavy black smoke. Uh, it has already vented itself at a part of the roof, uh, and this is a fire where we're really worried about apparatus placement so we don't melt headlights, right? We'll look at this fire and. and with reason, we'll say that is a fire that if we are going to try to make an interior attack, we're going to have to be smart about this uh, because this is a fire that's going to just flat kill us. Yeah. Right. We have to recognize what we're dealing with as a problem so we don't kill our full selves. Yeah. Well, in the mental health side of things, we have to recognize we have to do a scene size up. If I'm if I'm working a series of calls that are emotionally laden, Maybe I don't experience that emotional burden because I've distanced myself, right? But if others are experiencing an emotional burden, like families, if if they're squalling, if if they are uh, upset, I need to take stock of this. This is like my smoke, right? If if I get on scene and I hear people screaming, I, that is me reading the smoke of that scene, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a very different a different sense and a, a different use because this is going to be something. This is going to be something I need to watch for. Uh, and that recognition goes goes a long way to help us understand what's what's happening. One of those phrases that I use all the time, right, is we got to give reverence to the reverent. Uh, to recognize that we are engaged in a moment of reverence in someone's life, and to give that its due, you know. And that, that's a difficult thing I think for us to do, because more often than not we want to just move on, push on, go to the next call. And in some cases, we work in such a busy hall or busy station. Uh, processing time is is non-existent. 
Yeah. So you have to, uh, when I'm, when I'm hearing you say is you sometimes you have to figure out ways to do that. And breathing is one of the quick, easy ways to do that. Is there like, do you like box breathing or, yeah. uh, yeah, I, like, I love box breathing. Is that uh, four, 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 right? Yeah. yeah. In for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. Um, your body cannot sustain a level of excitement, uh, that is pathological if you are engaged in box breathing. Um, it, it, it's like a, a like a biology hack like it's, it's yeah it's, well it's which is the parasympathetic and sympathetic pathways correct yeah um and yeah. right now janelle is floored that i knew that and she's like who is this guy but you know every <laughs> once in a while i can throw some health and wellness at you um but in it i i believe is the research showing like four minutes of or a minute of box breathing you know fairly consistently can do that correct yeah yeah uh, so it, this is no different than the mindfulness research that is out there, uh, which is growing in, in its abundance and in its power. Uh, box breathing forces you to focus on one aspect of you, right? Uh, and, and we can do we can do breathing exercises kind of mindlessly, but we have to be engaged for box breathing. And, and that ability to say, this is what I'm doing, this is where I'm focused in the moment, uh, it does absolutely activate that that parasympathetic nervous system. Keep coming back to this thought of how we have to acknowledge that we're not always great at identifying our own weaknesses, whether it's you know physical, something that's happening biologically in our body. And it seems like one of the big steps here is learning to just listen to other people around us. Like we are not always the best you know, as self-evaluation. So yeah. somebody on your crew is saying, hey man, like you look tired, you seem stressed out, you're agitated lately. Like they're probably, they probably have a better understanding of what you're going through if we are often so, um, you know, kind of sealed off from wanting to acknowledge what's going on. So we got to like listen to other people too and as part of this process, but that also places the onus on other people to speak up. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's hard if if I struggle with, uh, I'll go back to alexithymia again. If, if I have a friend, a close friend who says, you know, I seem off, I seem different. Uh, my alexithymic response is going to be anger, right? Uh, I don't, I don't believe anything makes us angry. Uh, and I know that that statement might make some of them angry out there in the listening world. Uh, but, <laughs> I believe anger and the color green are exactly the same and that neither of them exist, right? Uh, I can see the color green, uh, but green isn't a color, right? So um, let's do some quick art with you, Aaron. What what colors do I need to make green? Isn't that red and blue? Well, that would make purple. Or so purple. we'll go with commander. <laughs> it's blue and yellow. Blue and yellow. Blue and yellow. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. blue and yellow make green seal. Uh, and that whole, what keeps your sandwich. You're safe, asking right? a guy who's kind of colorblind. I wear black and red. That's all I do. Yeah. Anyway. Well, there you go. Uh, so I, I, if I want to make something more green, I've got to add either more blue or more yellow. Well, anger, I believe, is the color green. And its two primary components are fear and hurt. Uh, if if I want to be more angry, I'm going to have to either have more fear or have more hurt. When these things come together, when I'm highly fearful and highly hurt, it starts to look like rage, right? But, but I believe that's a secondary response, our body trying to protect ourselves. Now, the number of firefighters, EMS personnel, rescue squad members, LEOs that you've met who are angry, a seeming, right? 
that number is a lot. If you're in a room right now listening to this, don't look at them. Just we all know right? <laughs> there's, there's angry people. In, don't make in, eye in contact. Yep. Yeah, don't make Eyes eye down. contact. You look forward. You're going to be fine. Uh, but it's not anger. When I hear anger as a therapist, I'm really looking for that root. Where's the fear or where's the hurt? I've asked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students to give me an example of something that makes them angry primarily. And not one of them has presented something to me that I couldn't distill down to either fear or hurt. Uh, so recognizing when I'm angry is a really good hack, you know, because I can see when I look angry, right? I, I can see what I'm doing. And often people will tell me that I'm jaded, salty, bitter, angry. You know, th They'll tell me these things. That's a really good reference point. Hey, I've got something deeper that I've got to deal with. And then take, take a breath at that take point. You recognize it. First, uh, first thing that you can do to combat it a little bit and change that mindset is take a breath, right? Yeah. Um, what's, what's another tool? Because uh, uh, yeah. we're all about, you know, give us tools that we can uh, use to make us better every single shift, every single day. Box breathing is one. Recognize, recognition is, an, is another big one here. Um, so, so keep laying this on us here. What do you got else? What else is there, Doc? Uh, so uh, probably my favorite psychological tool. So if we're going for breathing, which would be our uh, bio, let's look at the psycho side. My, my favorite psychological tool uh, is going to be fully acceptance of the emotion that's present. So if I am feeling sad or hurt or distant or lonely or whatever, to fully accept that as my as my experience, when I when I accept it as my experience, I allow it to pass. Right. So they asked the, asked the Dalai Lama, say, um, you know, uh, your holiness, how is it that you never become angry? And he said, the trick isn't not to become angry. It's to allow your anger to come and go. Right. It's a, it's a phenomenal uh, idea, which is almost a paradox. Uh, most everything that we do psychologically as emergency responders is an attempt to make something go away. Right. Uh, th that's also our job in, in essence, right? Something bad happens. We feel very strongly that we're supposed to go there and fix it. Uh, and that leads to a very fix it mindset. Instead, if I can just recognize what I'm experiencing and then accept that that's a valid experience, my emotion now has got my mental attention. So it doesn't need to get louder. It doesn't need to uh, keep escalating. It will, uh, what they call this is urge surfing. It will allow uh, it will allow that motion to crest over uh, and and it it will diminish. You will not be sad forever. You will not be mad forever. You will not be hurt forever. Um, and it, the faster I can validate that, the faster that that wave will crash and that 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 urge surfing will end. Do you have what's another technique that we can do to better um, kind of understand? Is there a question that you kind of ask yourself that says, okay, well, I mean, is it? Is it a Forrest Gump approach? What am I feeling right now? Or do you, how do you, in the moment though, right? Because these are the, the, the challenges. In the moment, you may have this high emotion. How do you, what's your cue? Yeah, uh, for me, I, I, I think you're, you're hitting it uh, nail on the head. It, it's to say, what is it that I'm feeling in this moment, right? Uh, I tell folks, I love feelings. I just don't trust them, right? My, my <laughs> feelings are not always accurate. I, I, but I love my feelings. My feelings are certainly uh, color and flavor my world, but but I, man, I don't trust them for anything. For my undergrad students, I'll try to evidence this like in my abnormal psychology course. Uh, I'll say, I wanna prove to you uh, that your emotions aren't always right. 
and, and they'll say like, you know, go ahead, or usually they're not in class at all. Uh, and, but then I'll, <laughs> I'll ask them, uh, do you remember when you thought high school was very real? You know, that, that those things that were happening, those social moves in high school, that they mattered so much. And most of them are like, yeah, I remember that. It was like, how right were you that they mattered as much as you thought they did? And they're like, oh, crap. You know, and, and if, if I could have been that wrong then, well, I can be that wrong now. Uh, this is another fallacy that we run into. It's called the end of days fallacy. And it works for people uh, around our age uh, it, really well. You ask them two questions. How different will you be on a scale of one to 10, 10 being completely different, one being no different at all. So how different will you be 10 years from now? And most people around our age will say, not that different, you know, maybe three or four. Then you follow it with the second question. How different are you today on that same scale of one to 10 than you were 10 years ago? Oh, I'm drastically different. I'm like a nine or a 10 out of 10. You know, a lot of things have changed in my life. We always think we've arrived. So when I recognize that my feelings are present, the, my first thought is to question them. Why am I feeling this? You know, what's leading to my body feeling this? Validate them, right? I have to validate them. I have to say, I hear you. I know that you're, you're present, but I'm not just going to lean into that and trust it. I then have to question, why is it that this is what I'm feeling? Yeah, I'm not going to let it affect me either until I really validate it, right? Yeah, uh, there is no such thing as a, a good or a bad emotion. There are only emotions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and recognizing what has led them to be present in you in that moment is a very powerful tool. Uh, it is the premise of a, a, an entire style of therapy known as cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most effective treatments we have against chronic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. What, what do you do if you have acknowledged a feeling about something, anger, whatever it might be, and it's not passing? You, it's not passing. You keep thinking about it. I mean, we could be talking about something that happened, and then months later, you're still stewing on it, still mm -hmm. ruminating. What, what yeah. do you advise? So I, I wish I had a one-size-fits-most uh, for, uh, for that question. Uh, so I, I, let me give you a, a couple of options, right? So if it's something, uh, let's say it's a traumatic event, like let's, let's say it's a call and you can't stop thinking about it. Um, I would encourage you to consider that you're trying not to think about it. And by trying not to think about it, you are by definition thinking about it. If every time a, a thought comes to my brain, my initial thought is don't think about it. Uh, we call this uh, the white bear uh, or uh, the, the emotional uh, paradox. I can't think about not thinking about something. So if I'm trying to avoid it, it gets worse. And, and I always teach this one like uh, my daughter, if she comes to my bedroom and she says, daddy, there's a monster in the closet. If I tell her to get in bed with me, um, I, I've told her two things. One, you're only safe with daddy. And that's cute because she's young right now, but that's going to be a lot less cute when she gets older and I, I want to have stuff to do. Uh, and the other thing I've told her is that there's there's maybe really a monster in your in your uh, closet. That's why I think it's okay for you to sleep here, which means tomorrow she's not going to be better. She's going to be worse. She's going to be more likely to come to my room. If we do this for a month, a month of avoidant coping, which is oxymoronic, we can't both avoid something and deal with it. But a month of avoidant <laughs> coping, she's going to feel terrible. I can turn her room into whatever I want because she's never going back there. Right. It can be a man cave, a media closet. 
home gym if I never wanted to walk in there. Sorry, Aaron. Uh, it could be whatever. It could be whatever, right? Uh, if I'm still ruminating on a, an, an event that had occurred, my brain is telling me that I haven't dealt with it. So in that particular instance, what I need, what I need my people to do is uh, exposure. Um, write it out in as much detail as possible is a great method to do this. Tell that story to a therapist in as much detail as possible, processing every aspect of it. Uh, because what happens is your brain knows that you've got some leftover stuff and it wants to file it away. Now, as soon as you tell it where to file, it's good, right? But if you're trying to avoid it, your brain keeps bringing that back to the front of your mind's eye. Hey, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do with this? I tell, I tell folks, it, it eventually turns into like uh, internet 2.0. Uh, it looks a lot like all of these other calls. Do you want me to put it there? So now it's not that one call I'm thinking of. I've got like the worst, worst hits ever, uh, ever invented of maybe like child drowning calls or SIDS calls or things like that. And they, here they all come, start flashing one after another, after another, all because it's trying to help me find the file, right? It's, it's just trying to put it where it needs to go. But if my goal is to make that memory go away, I will live it every day, right? I, I can't make it go away, but I never have to run that call again. So I think that, I think that's a huge step to recognize I never have to do that call again. I might have to do calls like it, but not that one. Not unless I've got a DeLorean that I can get up to eighty-eight, right? Like yeah, it, it's well, not, not yet. Not but it's, it's, somebody's working on it, but not, it's Somebody, not here yet, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've got some things I'd like to redo, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but that's you know we never do that one again. If it's an emotion, I I would guess that the thing that you're ruminating on is anger, right? And if you stew, because and, and the reason I say that is because you chose the word stew. Uh, I am a therapist, so forgive me for reading into your words. But we we tend not to stew over our sadness, and we tend not to stew over our joy. We tend to stew over things that piss us off, right? It's the things that make us angry. Well, then we have to recognize that I'm not angry, right? We go back to anger is the color green. What am I really? Am I afraid or am I hurt? And when I can deal with either of those emotions, whichever one is my problem, I will stew using your word uh, a lot less. So not a one size fits all, but there are there are key approaches in any of these circumstances. But then it seems like you've got to then take it to, okay, I'm hurt. So mm -hmm. then how do you deal with the hurt? And yes, you know, then, it's like you keep working through these different cycles, right? Until you can distill it down. You know, an amazing thing about being hurt is your acknowledgement that you are hurt is often the thing that will soften the emotion the most. Um, so uh, psych ache, which is a, a term that we're using now to describe like my soul hurts. Uh, psych ache uh, is, is very similar to like a knee pain. And talking to a bunch of emergency responders, I know your knees hurt from time to time, right? Uh, my knee hurts to tell me that something's wrong. That's why I have pain receptors, right? Folks who are born without pain receptors tend not to make it past puberty, right? Uh, if, if I don't know that something's wrong because it hurts, I don't get it. I don't get it addressed. So recognizing that I'm hurt emotionally is often a is, is often the really good step to make that hurt diminish because the hurt is truly saying inside of your brain, okay, finally you hear me, you hear me. Now I get to uh, to wrestle with, am I hurt appropriately? Because sometimes I'm hurt when I, I quite honestly I don't deserve to be hurt, right? I, I took something wrong or I personalized something that maybe wasn't meant for me. Uh, a good test for this is. Uh, go on any social media and look at comments, 
And, and you'll, you'll see lots of folks who are trusting their feelings. Uh, yeah. So we, we get to question that. Another thing is to validate when you're hurt. Hey, I didn't deserve that, especially if it was like you're, you're genuinely hurt. Someone has done wrong to you to, to, to validate that you didn't deserve that. And then to start marching towards a level of forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is almost antithetical to uh, our culture, but it's for us. It's not it's not for them. Often the people that hurt us the most could care less if you forgive them. It's us who are dealing with that hurt every day, not them. Well, and, and a lot of this self-recognition um, that you talk about is, uh, you know, you have to be really in tune with with your own self and your body and your feelings. Yeah. And um, it, how much does sleep affect us? How much does nutrition affect us? Now, kind of turning the, the the steering wheel a little bit more to the physiological side of it and how it, it affects the, the cycle and social. Uh, wh what is your take on sleep? Uh, yeah, so uh, we sleep uh, because we have to, right? And, and, and I know that's a no-does statement for nearly everybody listening, but I meet so many folks who will immediately discount the role of sleep in our, our physical and uh, mental health. If, if we weren't required to sleep for us to heal our bodies and to rest our minds, I truly don't believe we would do it, right? So uh, it, is, it is a needed process. I like to think of uh, and I, I know I'm kind of stepping in, in your area here, Aaron, but uh, we are uh, we are athletes, uh, right? So we're in many cases like sports cars. Yeah, if you have a body, sport, you are an athlete. Yeah, S sports cars are uh, notorious for uh, you can't run them all day and they'll be completely okay the next day. They have to have a break, have to let that engine cool down or you're going to melt the heads, right? And then you better be putting premium fuel in that sports car or you're going to clog up your injectors, right? Uh, for us, that rest gives us a chance to not only start to heal the tissues of our body, a very physical healing of our body, uh, but it's during sleep where we actually encode all of our memories. We, we jump, dump memories from short-term storage to long-term storage. We process things uh, in our sleep. And some of those cells that we're attempting to repair exist between our ears, right? Our, yep. our brains uh, need that rest so that they're ready to go the next day. And we... I mean, I think anecdotally, we, we see this. You have probably at some point in your life been cursed with someone or, or, or been hard on them and, and then said, I'm so sorry. I'm just so tired, right? Well, we are awful to ourselves when we are tired and we forget to apologize, right? Uh, so if, if I'm not getting sleep, uh, there's no amount of emotional recognition that's going to that's gonna help me. I've, I've, got to, I've got to help that physical side of me uh, so that I can help the other sides of me uh, as well. So um, our shifts, uh, uh, another shout out to Dr. Sarah Jenke uh, and her putting out a lot of research regarding sleep and, and the shift cycles. And, and the results from her are, are really, you know, really clear, frustrating at the same time, is that there's no one right answer. It's really department specific. Uh, one of the things I'm seeing, which is, uh, I think, a concerning trend uh, are departments that have really adopted like a fast car or a squad unit to run medical calls. And they usually put the same crew on that particular uh, uh, apparatus or, or vehicle. Well, they're running a significant amount more, especially in those late night hours, you know, uh, than the rest of the department. For them, uh, you know, a 4896 or a 2448 might not make a lot of sense, you know, so, but 
because we do a, a good for the goose is good for the gander mentality in the fire service. Uh, and, and I get the, the HR nightmare. If you have two stations in your department of 20 stations that run all night, well, they probably need a different shift than that outlying station that runs maybe 10 calls a month. Yeah. You know? That's the challenge, right? That's, that's, that's where you come a, into it. Such yep. a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do believe based on, on the research and talking to Sarah, Dr. Jenke and, and James Gearing and some of the research that's coming out that, you know, the four shift where you can at least get three days of recovery between shifts is, is looking more positive than some of the others. You know, the one thing you and I talked about was we need, I think we were saying between like five to seven hours to start to really process the deep trauma. Is that correct? Of sleep. Once we get into that deeper sleep for that long, longer period, isn't that where the trauma um, starts to where we really, where our brain starts to process that more, that more. So, so you'll hear different, uh, different people giving different answers when it comes to like that actual hour, right? Uh, kind of the good rule of thumb is it, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of mental energy for you to do these types of things. So in order for you to do this type of processing, you're going to have to have rest, right? So, but the amount of rest that you specifically will need will be dependent uh, on, on your specific needs what is your uh, what is your mental health look like? And I'm not saying mental health in the words of like how many disorders do you have? I mean truly brain health. You know, do you have a lot of brain derived neurotropic factor? Uh, which, if you've got a lot of cortisol, if you've got a lot of stress going on in your body, you have a diminished level of BDNF. So like growing new neurons is hard for you if you're stressed. Clearing out dead and dying neurons is hard for you if you're stressed. Getting the right amount of glucose and oxygen to your brain is harder if you're under a lot of stress. Uh, so these things put us at, at, at a disadvantage. And rest is one of those times uh, where we can kind of set that scale back into our favor or at least give us uh, a leg up. Uh, a 48-hour shift, when, when that came out, it, and it was based on that idea, give, give more time for rest. There's a lot of evidence in, in favor and against uh, any shift, no matter what shift you want to pick on right now, just engage in some of your favorite forms of research bias and prove that you're right to all of your friends. <laughs> right, you, right. You absolutely do it. Uh, but what we're seeing is uh, the number of departments who who said, you know, on that second day, it gives my people uh, some time to, to sleep in. Yet most all of those departments had uh, some type of uh, administrative officer who said, no, we got roll call at 7 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. Completely, completely diminished it. You know, yeah. we have to sleep. Well, well, we do that to ourselves, right? Well, well, we'll give them time to sleep in, but we're still having our briefing at 730 every day. Right. right? Or, or we'll give them time to work out, but we're going to have our briefing over that. And so it's like, you kind of, you're talking out of both ends here. You, know, you got to make mm -hmm. a decision. Same thing with paging systems. Some firehouses have paging systems throughout the entire uh, station, but you might have four units there. So even though the medic unit's going out, everybody else is getting uh, toned out on that. And and I think those are things that as we continually have conversations like that, departments need to evaluate, hey, how can we start to help get our members more rest? Um, how can we get them? And maybe education is another great piece to this is, you know, obviously you having being on this program and people listening to this are all of a sudden more aware of how sleep affects the total mental health uh, picture of it. And I think this is where it begins. This is where that change begins as research continually develops. Um, you know, the, the one thing you mentioned was inflammation. And when you dig into all of our issues, 
um, talk a little bit more about inflammation. Like, so mentally, how does that, you, you mentioned how it affects brain or brain chemistry, but you know, that, that ties into nutrition that ties into sleep that ties into fitness. That that ties into our social, um, uh, relationships in a way, correct? Yeah. yeah. When we are inflamed, uh, we are not feeling well, like there's, that's just kind of how that game works. And if I'm not feeling well, I'm not functioning at the best of my ability. And this is true whether I'm trying to just process a day, right? Or if I'm trying to save my marriage, or if I'm responding to a particular emergency, if I don't feel well, if I'm not feeling good, I am, I'm going to struggle in all of these other areas. So for brain health, when we look at inflammation, we're looking at a the results of inflammation in what they do with these other uh, these other chemicals again like cortisol and then the, the diminished level of brain derived neurotrophic factor uh, so in, inflammation then gets in the way right i'm not i'm not making the best choices when i don't feel well so from my point of view in 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 the mental health side it's about this uh, am i prepared for the day right and most of us have had a day where we woke up with a crick in our neck and we know that we are not functioning well when we have a crick in our neck, right? We we hurt and we're we're short with others. We're short with ourselves. We get frustrated that we're not better and we hyper focus on it. Uh, these these things that come into our life just significantly impact our ability to function, uh, not just day in and day out, but minute in and minute out. So so now everything kind of starts to tank. Yeah, it is a total picture that at least I'm glad we're talking about because you're a mental health guy, I'm the health, the fitness guy, but we both know we we rely heavily on each other. You know, then that nutrition component can that can either you can either fuel inflammation or you you can actually um, you know combat it by how you eat and 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 really how you sleep and and treating your body really well. Um, and we could go on for hours about that, uh, oh, and yeah. we probably will another time. But let's talk more about the social side of this, because you're also a, a fire chaplain. And that's really kind of what got you started in this whole kind of journey towards improving mental health. It, you had a great story about. So how did that whole thing come about as being a chaplain? So I was uh, doing mental health work in, in the fire service and uh, pretty much the only people who were consistently doing mental health work at the at the level of the station. Right. The, the, there's always this like upper echelon of researchers and, and that that exists, but actually boots on the ground. Uh, the only folks who were doing mental health were, were chaplains. And, you know, so we ended up, uh, I worked with a lot of chaplains and at the time wasn't it uh, wasn't a chaplain. And then it was one of those kind of like random trainings and it was mostly a chaplain cohort of, of folks. And I was like, but I should probably be a chaplain. And, and they were like, yeah, you probably should. So it, it was I do have a I do have a little bit of a knack for uh, finding myself in great situations accidentally, right? Uh, I joined the fire service and accidentally joined the fire service. That's a, a true story, right? Uh, it's just, and actually, that's how most of our lives work: a, a series of serendipitous events that lead to something uh, that we appraise as overwhelmingly positive because that's that's what we do as as people. Uh, but my work as a chaplain is. Uh, and it's exciting. Like I, I enjoy that ability. It also gives people a little bit of a distance between that mental health word and fire service. 
because uh, strangely enough, uh, it, chaplains are far more accepted than counselors uh, in a fire hall. Um, it, even though roughly their job is equivocal, uh, it, it's one is just more socially accepted than the other. And it was kind of your in, right? To hey, this is this is the way I can start talk having these conversations. I mean, you're talking like 20 years ago, correct? About oh yeah, no no. no. So uh, I joined the fire service uh, uh, 19 years ago. Uh, and got into the mental health side in 2008. And uh, okay. I'm a therapist, so math isn't a strong suit of mine. So whatever that is. 20. We'll call it roughly yeah, it, 20. Yeah. 15, I think it's 20. like 45, uh, yeah, really. Yeah. It probably feels like 40 in some, because it's enough. <laughs> I've been talking about fitness in the fire service since 2010, and, and you're right around that same. So it's an uphill battle. But, yeah. you know, we've come a long way, right? I mean. Oh, my goodness. Like can't even really see where we've come from because we've come such a long way and made a turn, you know, like it's, it's great. And one thing that you said when we were just talking, you said, I think every fire department should reach out and try to create these relationships, create a chaplain uh, yep. because they can help support, you know, any peer support system that you have in, in place, right? They're not there to compete with that. Yeah. And man, I love that you use that word. Cause I hear that all the time. Uh, that that two programs that are aimed at helping the same group of folks might be competing with one another. Uh, man, <laughs> there's more than one way to help someone and no one way is for everyone. So the more options I have, like I never want to go to a buffet that only has one meat and one vegetable option. I don't, I don't think we can call that a buffet anymore. We can, we can just say, here's your food. You know, uh, if if I'm looking at mental health, I'm, I'm looking for that buffet. I'm looking for that spread. There are folks who would never talk to a chaplain who would talk to a peer. Uh, there's folks who would never talk to a peer who would talk to a counselor because it's uh, you know HIPAA compliant and confidential. I need to be focused on getting my people more options so that they have more choices about where they can get the help, knowing that the goal is for everybody to get the, get the help. Reaching out and, and, and getting a relationship with a chaplain uh, is a great a great first step, but you have to be, uh, I'll use the word cautious, uh, because I, 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 it's a soft enough word. Uh, you have to be cautious when you're, when you're finding a chaplain and, and it can't just be man preacher down the road, uh, who can deliver one heck of a sermon, uh, on a Sunday morning, you know, like it, it needs to be someone who understands fire culture. Right. Uh, I I've worked with a chaplain who, Every time I, I'm, I met with her, she would talk about how offended she was when she went to the fire hall. I was like, <laughs> Ooh, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, and it's not. I worked with another chaplain. He said, if I ever go into a fire hall and they change anything about the way they're acting, I'm failing. You know, because yeah, they're right. not being genuine. They're not they're not being they're not being real. So finding someone who's got a little bit of cultural competence uh, is is huge. And what I find is that often we can empower one of our own members who is that they have a they have a, a spiritual religious domain about them. We can empower them to pursue certification and chaplaincy and they become some of the most phenomenal chaplains we've ever had. They don't have a church anywhere. Right. They mm -hmm. they, they are not the full time preaching anything. They, they don't go to they're not the leader of their temple. They're they're not. But but they're people who understand firefighters they are people who understand EMS professionals they are people who understand LEOs and they're people who understand a spiritual religious domain exist. You know, yeah, I, I believe there's a lot of chaplains out there who simply don't know their chaplains yet. You know, they, right. they haven't they haven't felt that.
and it's not one particular religion, right? Like we, no, it's not it's not about that. It's about connection, correct? Like you said, I, hey, I, religion. If somebody wants to talk about it, but that's not my goal is to make that connection and and help. That's the main thing, right? Yeah, I, I've got uh, I've got no secrets. My my goal is absolutely to tend to those who are in need because I believe that they are humans. I I, I believe that they are are people. I feel very called to help others. Right now, look as a chaplain uh, and, and as a believer in, in my faith system. Would I love for everyone I encounter uh, to uh, to see what I see? And well, of course, right? Like of of course I would, but. I also believe in unconditional love, unconditional positive regard, right? Even if you flatly reject my belief system, you're worthy of love. You're worthy of not being miserable every day. And you're, you're worth this idea that, 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 that your life doesn't end because of your career, right? Yeah. You're, you're worth something. Uh, and if we get to that, that talk about worth, uh, I, I don't think there's anything more important a chaplain can do than to remind people that their worth is inherent, right? That you don't have to prove your worth. You were born with it. Uh, and, and and that transcends religion. It transcends uh, a spiritual belief. It, it just, it is our domain of uh, an existential existence. Yeah, it's about people. It's about relationships. People. It's about what we talk about here, trying to be better and bring those around you better. Uh, by using some of the skills you gave us, obviously breathing, looking in the mirror, doing some uh, assessments and, and really understanding why you're feeling certain things. And of course, I knew this was going to lead to many, many more conversations. And I can't thank you enough uh, for being on because we could go on for hours and hours and hours. But you did say you're not you have nothing to hide in your your um, an open book. We're going to find out because we got some hot seat questions for you before we leave. <laughs> And these are just uh, general things to kind of dig into you and uh, kind of things that you do and, and uh, you know, experience or want to experience. Janelle has a bunch here set up. Some of these come from her mom, my mom, former guests, maybe some people that were on the panel that we just uh, were on together. So um, with that in mind, all right, let's do it, Janelle. Throw them in the hot seat. Well, so, some of them I'm just making up on the fly because there's just <laughs> some good stuff here. So. We have covered a lot today. I'm just going to read a couple terms here. Uh, psych ache, anti-fragile, avoidant coping, the white bear, urge surfing, end of days fallacy. First of all, we're going to need a glossary. If you can send that <laughs> to us after, that would be great. I'm curious if you have a favorite term or a favorite fallacy that you like to talk about uh, when we're talking about mental health. Uh, because there's I, just there's too many good ones. My absolute favorite uh, thing to tell others is about the white bear. Uh, and the white bear comes from um, the thought of you can't think about not thinking about a white bear. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the psychologist, um, uh, last name Weaver, uh, said, uh, come up to the stage, tell me a story about anything. And anytime you think about a white bear, I want you to ring this bell but don't think about the white bear and, and oh my goodness and suddenly all, all we're thinking about so the reason i love that one is because it involves exposure exposure based treatments are the only uh, gold standard treatments we have for trauma related disorders um i cannot pretend i didn't live through the things that i've lived through but because that 
flatly rejects reality. So, so the white bear for me is, is like my guiding beacon as a therapist, as a chaplain, and as a friend uh, to, to folks about how they can walk through this journey uh, using exposure and acceptance rather than uh, avoidance and distance. That's a good one. Isn't that a polar bear? I love it. Isn't the white bear a polar bear? Why are you thinking about a white bear, Aaron? I clearly said, <laughs> don't think about Bring the, the bear. bell, Aaron. Bring your bell. If I had one, it'd be going on. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I, I like it so much I have my own bell. Did he just use a Jedi mind trick on me? What happened here? What are we doing? What is it? You're going to start golly. acting like a chicken now. This is all yeah, different. Have what hypnosis. Is, I, did, I just woke up. Maybe I'll become a better host now. I, I, I think Janelle put you up to that. Uh, all right. Back on track. Speaking of being a better host, I do have a great question for you. You are a member of the Tennessee Federation of Fire Chaplains. And when I say the word federation, I just think of my old school like days of following wrestling. So if you were a wrestling character, what is your name and what is your go-to patented move? All right. Um, I'll start with patented move. It's going to be the sleeper hold, right? Because I want you gently to go into submission, right? Uh, so that, that's going to be my patented move. Uh, needs to be a chaplain-related name. So we'll go with um, the Stash of Glory. Oh, good one. <laughs> Father like Stash of Glory. Father oh, okay. Stash. I'd like to get rid of mine and choose Father Stash. Uh, there we go. We got it. Aaron. This is, yes. this is perfect. It supports that I am a dad. Uh, <laughs> yes. So yeah. I I like Robert like Stash. your your power move is called the psych ache. Oh, <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what my power move is. I, got, I don't think I, this was a question for me. I think this was a chance for you to show off your. It was a little bit. I, was, I had to redeem yeah. myself for the question about what makes green, and I was like, oh, I got one. <laughs> so we got Father Stash with his patented move, the psych ache. That's great. I'm in. Oh man. All right. I see. Uh, you've got a guitar in the background. Um, yeah, it's all for show. Okay, got it. So, well, if it's all for show, then uh, what's your what's your go to karaoke song? Uh, I like anything country. Uh, so, I, I am trying to learn to play the guitar. I have been a student of the guitar for a staggering ten weeks, um, because it's hard, and my kids are at the point in their school where things are hard for them, and I want them to see that things can be hard and it be okay. So I, I try to practice where they can see me struggle and they can see me uh, fail and uh, hear some of my negative self-talk and how I work myself out of that. So I, I truly want them to see that struggling is okay. Um, but uh, Older Country is probably my favorite karaoke song. Uh, Whiskey and You by Chris Stapleton is a kind of a, a go-to. Uh, then we'll give you a caveat that no one on this planet wants to hear me sing. Uh, so uh, just because it's my favorite song doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> oh that's a challenge next time we're at a conference i'm gonna get up there with you i think and oh that'll be great yeah 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 well we'll you gotta clear, we can clear a karaoke you uh, know if we have to um you know we have to face our fears doc and that would be scary for people to watch <laughs> it would be scary for them I, I would have no fear i am the most socially awkward person i've embraced that my whole life uh so like i don't mind being awkward 
uh, I don't mind singing off key in front of people. Now it's their fear to your point, their fear that they would have. Right. To address. Yeah. I'd be right there with you. I don't care. I mean, people have listened to any of one of our other episodes, 52 <laughs> of them, by the way. So please look, uh, look up some of the previous episodes and hopefully you'll see that I've gotten a little bit better. Uh, but speaking <laughs> of better, the final question is what do you do or what are you doing right now to be better? To be better, uh, you know, I, I am really working on the word no. Um, no is a word that had left my vocabulary for quite some time. Uh, and I, I am I am actively striving for more no's, even for things that are good. Um, and and that's 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 my that's my go to. Uh, I am watching what I eat a little bit better. Um, I know that my body doesn't like things that are sugary. And I also know that this time of the year is like when all the sugary things are free and widely available. Uh, so uh, being mindful of, of what I consume uh, is something that I, I, I have constantly done. Uh, but saying no, I, I think is my, my biggest what I'm doing right now for me. Yeah. Saying no to the foods, but saying no to things that you maybe don't have time for or that maybe aren't high as you correct a hundred a hundred percent yeah so um I, I had a preacher i don't know probably 10 years ago he, uh, that was his sermon topic was um anyone can say no to the bad but can you say no to the good uh, and at the time i was like that's stupid <laughs> <laughs> but remember that uh, end of days fallacy i'm a little bit different 10 years ago to uh, today than that i was um uh, so I, I certainly hope that 10 years from now, I will continue to be different. And better. And that's what we're all about here is improving a little bit at a time, taking some of the great words and the great concepts um, that you gave us to, to take a breath, uh, ask yourself, you know, why are you feeling a particular way or why are you even acting or responding a particular way and acknowledging that that's okay. And um, in some cases, uh, the breath or walking away or doing something to help change your mindset uh, can go really a long way in improving your mental health. And, you know, it, you just touched on focusing on nutrition, focusing on kind of being that total good package and parent. Um, a lot of information to really help our listeners really appreciate your insight. And, and again, I, I knew you would be awesome. We'd love to continue our relationship and talks further. Um, for those of you that are are just listening to this on the podcast, you can see the actual video of this on the Fire Rescue One YouTube page. Highly encourage you to do it. You can see uh, Dr. Edwards' great smile um, and a picture of his great stash, or as we like to call him now, Father Stash. Uh, please rate, review the show wherever you're listening to it, whatever platform. Uh, if you have anything to uh, give as far as feedback. We are always open to suggestions. We want to know whether we're on something or onto something. You can email us also at better every shift at firerescue1.com. We are all about improving. We're improving mentally, physically, and understanding that what Dr. Edwards said is you, you have to really take a moment to evaluate things and look around, try to bring each other up, support each other, talk to each other, and most importantly, learn something, do something, and share something to make you and those around you better every shift. Thanks for listening, everybody.